Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks leading French intellectual Bernd-Henri Lévy how France can cope with a crisis of liberalism in its election year. If there is a real right, a real left, and this process of decomposition of National Front, you might discover that they are not at the second round. And for his thoughts on the rise of right-wing movements across Europe. When politics means less and less for the people, then they may turn to National Front, who still makes some politics, and ugly politics, and hideous politics, but politics. Bernd-Henri Lévy, or BHL, as Parisians on the left bank like to call him, came to prominence as one of the leaders of the Nouveau Philosophe movement in the 1970s. Since then, he's been a man of the left, but also an outspoken proponent of intervention in Bosnia, Iraq, Syria and Libya, and a vigorous debater on the fraught arguments over multiculturalism and Islam in France. His new book, The Spirit of Judaism, is published this month. I went to meet BHL at his Parisian apartment and began by asking if there are different ideas between Europe and America about what liberalism is and whether that makes it harder to have a common defence. There is a common point between the EU and the US, which is the UK. The liberalism has been invented in UK, in, uh, in England. This is really the common trunk, and the two branches of it are the European liberalism in one, in one direction and the American liberalism in the other one. So they are American and French liberalism are cousins through the, the common uh, link with the English liberalism. Of course, it is, um, they are very similar. Now, the current crisis has a lot to do with what is happening in UK. All that made the Brexit possible is probably one of the roots of this crisis of liberalism in the two daughter countries, which are America and, and Europe. And what is it, in your view, that made Brexit possible, that reads across into, into other countries, to France, perhaps beyond that too? What made uh, uh, Brexit possible is probably... Number one, an eternal trend, which is a populist trend, uh, which is always a, an underground wave, which has to be opposed, which has to be resisted, but which, which exists. You had in the UK a problem in dealing with the finance. You are the fatherland of the finance having become mad unregulated. Liberalism does not mean no regulation to this uh, Frankenstein monster, which is the finance of today, and of which, uh, again, UK is the very, the very capital. So this is one point. The other point is probably a difficulty to, to, to adjust and to fix exactly the question of immigration. Uh, citizenship, communitarism, multi-identity, the end of the 20th century had to invent new patterns dealing with all of that. You English, we continental Europe, and they Americans achieved half of the, uh, of the path. 
and we failed half of the path. If you see uh, UK, for example, it is a rev- the opposite problem than in France. In France, you have probably too strong Jacobinism, power of the state, obligation for the minority to quit their old cloth, old garments, and to endorse the national narrative. Nos ancêtres les Gaulois. In UK, it is the opposite. You probably gave too much to some identities who obviously want to share less and less with the common citizenship. It is the the opposite model as in France, and it is a a symmetric mistake. And yet you might say both models being so different have come to the same conclusion, that that there is, is a problem with integration and that electorates are in revolt against it. So the laïcité, the big... French emphasis on integration has ended up with a strong candidate of the National Front, even possibly within sight of power. How can that have happened? And is this simply another form of the populism you describe, or is this something more specific to France? I don't think that the, that National Front has as much to do with uh, immigration as it is generally said. I don't think so. Uh, National Front, if you see the the concrete votes at uh, all the recent elections, is sometimes very strong and maybe the strongest in some parts of the France where you have very few uh, migrants and where you have very little problems of identity. So I don't think that this um, identity matter is so strong. My hypothesis is that the rise uh, of the National Front stems for the decline of politics. It's when politics are dying, when politics means less and less for the people, then they may turn to National Front, who still makes some politics, and ugly politics, and hideous politics, but politics. And they are probably the last one in France. If you ask me about France, I will tell you that. The last one to take seriously politics, to have some real targets, to seem to be decided, decided to implement them, to, to offer an alternative, to say to the citizen that everything is not the same, that it is not uh, black cap and, uh, cap and cap white cap and, uh, and cap white. They are the, front, the National Front. So it is more coming from a crisis of politics than from, from a crisis of identity. So this crisis of politics, as you put it, that the National Front is an interesting thesis that it's not so much about a kind of resurgence of nationalism as such, but it's it's a gap. It's a gap in the market. How do you think that will play out in 2017? And what do the major parties now need to do? Or is it too late? I don't think it is too late. Um, the nomination of François Fillon on this regard is not a bad thing because François Fillon, I disagree with him, I will not vote for him, but I must confess that he has some political choices. He has a real line and he stands for his line, rightist, but but clear. If we have on the left side something similar, if we have um, a woman or a man who... um, really stands on his feet and on his points, 
you may have a sort of return of politics and then National Front will be more weak. You will see a Fillon a versus a Manuel Valls, maybe, let's say, Marine Le Pen might not be at the second round. Do you still think it's possible to keep Marine Le Pen out? Of course. I I always thought it that they are more National Front is much more fragile than the commentators say. They are corrupted. They have a lot of scandals which are going to come. They have a lot of still neo-fascist or neo-Nazis in their ranks identified as such. They have they will have some low judicial problems uh, countless. They appear more and more one of their supposed qualities for their supporters was that they were not divided, that they were united behind the chief, which was the father and now the, the daughter. But people discover more and more that they are just as the other parties, maybe more, divided by very strong quarrels, internal quarrels, and even more than the, the normal right and the left, even more because it is family. Uh, quarrels. It is the father and the daughter, it is the daughter and the niece, uh, it is a fight to death for these um, sort of people. So all that together might create a real surprise in May 2017. If there is a real right, a real left, and this process of decomposition of National Front, you might discover that they are not at the second round. You mentioned, Monsieur Fillon as, as possibly a good thing, good potential in this race. And yet in many ways, you have a very different worldview to his, particularly on Russia, where he's made quite cosy signals towards Vladimir Putin. Is this a, a sign, really, of a kind of loss of nerve by Western potential leaders that they, Donald Trump possibly the same thing, want to be close to Mr. Putin? It is not only loss of nerves, it is loss of uh, of ethics, it is loss of uh, morality, it is the eternal Chamberlain mood in Europe, Munich, Munich, Chamberlain, Daladier. Uh, this is what is happening. I am really frightened by the amount of uh, pro-Putin uh, tendency in, in my country. On the right, and on the left. There is a cowardness, there is a will to endorse the national narrative of Putin. There is a, a way to accept these crazy ideas of Russia being isolated and therefore obliged, compelled to counterattack and so on, which is just disgusting. And this is growing more and more. And those who think, as I do, as I say since years and years, that Putin is not a friend to Europe, are a minority, uh, an increasing minority. The West, at the end of the day, very seldom f did fight for its values. We did not fight for our values during the Armenian genocide. We did not fight for our values in the Spanish war. We fought for our values very late against Hitler. We did not fight for our values in East Berlin, 53, in Hungary, 56, in Czechoslovakia, 68, uh, even in Poland, 81. So the general trend of the West is not to fight for its values. It's one of the weaknesses 
of the West that even if they embrace their own values, they are not ready to, to, to fight for them. So look at what happens in Libya regarding the Daesh, regarding ISIS. They pushed ISIS out of, of, the, of the country, of, of, of Derna first, last year, and of Sürt today. Without any foreign intervention, without any coalition, they did it by themselves. You have in Libya post-intervention, some, and I know this country rather well, as you know, you have some civilian forces who are really committed to prevent ISIS to put his its boots on the ground. That is not such a bad success. That means that the seed of democracy, of anti-radicalism, uh, has been planted in, uh, in Libya. It's not a complete failure. And you, you can have other examples of uh, intervention, which uh, smooth intervention, uh, which, which has been able to stop the crime. We're talking here in, in Paris, in the placid environment of, uh, of your apartment on the left bank, just over a year after you know, the, the, the terrible events at Bataclan and around the city. How much do you feel that the threat of extremism has changed in the past year? The threat is, uh, is quite high. In France and in Europe in general, it has not diminished at all. It will diminish when the ISIS will be battled, will be defeated on the ground in its capitals, which is Raqqa and Mosul, because there is many roots of ISIS. But one of them is the fascination for the supposed, the so-called caliphate, for the so-called great leaders fighting the whole world in a state of loneliness in Raqqa and in Mosul. If they are shown as they are, which is a, a defeated army, not so brave, not so good fighters, it will give a big blow to all the jihadism all over Europe. That's why I'm pleading since a long time, since the beginning of ISIS, for a military intervention, which is implemented since a few weeks in Mosul. And that's a good thing. This is the only way in our hands, in short term, the only way to lower the threat is that, to defeat them in their... Uh, heartland, uh, at the level of the brain of the ISIS. And that is what, at the end of the day, we are at last making Mosul. By the way, one example of intervention which is not so, uh, which is successful, for which I, I pleaded since years, and we did it, is to help the Kurds, the Kurds, the Kurds of Iraq, to liberate the, the Christian towns. After a few days, I was there. I, I, I'm coming back from a few days ago, from the area of Mosul, of the Nineveh Plain. Mosul is, is a difficult battle, but all the Christian cities around, Karakosh, Bartela, and others, it, was, it is a well-achieved intervention. The, the Christian families are coming back, and at least the project of eradication of the memory of Christianity in the Nineveh Plain is over. I'm interested that you cast the argument about ISIS in terms of an external intervention. And I'm thinking back to an exchange of views you, you had in, in a book with Michel Huillebecq a few years ago. And he has continued to write 
in fiction, but I think intended to reflect the real situation in France as he sees it, as the problem of, of Islamification, as he would regard it, being now a danger inside the societies, almost regardless of what might be happening on the plains of Nineveh or in Aleppo. Do you think that he has a point, or is that an, an overstated case when it comes to dealing with radical Islam? No, I don't. I don't. He does not. Uh, he does not have a point. Michel Houellebecq is wrong when he says that the threat is Islamification of France. The threat is radicalization of Islam, which is not the same. The real battle is not um, taking place inside France between Islam and the rest. It is taking place inside Islam between radical Islam and later Islam. This is a real battle. This is what is going on. And arguments that you've seen in France, symbolic arguments, but showing that kind of divide and also showing a certain bitterness in the rest or parts of the rest of the, the society. How strongly do you feel that the laïcité model works when it comes to something like banning the veil in public places or the arguments about burkinis on the beach? Burkini on the beach was a was a crazy debate because there is uh, there is so few. It's difficult to oblige ladies to. It, it can be considered as, as a dress. It is not so clear that it is a, a political sign and so on. So, tactically, tactically, it was a bad battle to fight on Burkini. But strategically speaking, the battle of secularism, which is to to ban in the public space signs who are a living preach in favor of inequality between men and women, a living preach for intolerance, this battle is, uh, for secularism is good, yes. And it is one, one of the qualities of France, all parties uh, confounded to, 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 to think that. So just to be clear, you, are, you support a ban on the face veil in public places. Of course, yes. Yes, you, you cannot have... This is one of the, of the lessons, for example, of my master, Emmanuel Levinas, to whom my, my next book, Genius of Judaism, is partly devoted. Democracy, dialogue, begins by the fact to be able to see someone face to face. The nakedness, the nudity of a face is the condition for a human dialogue. If there is one part of the, of the partnership who is veiled, who looks at you behind a jail of tissue, of um, material, it's bad for the person, it's bad for you, it's bad for the interrelation, it's bad for the three. It's opposite of democracy, dialogue, smooth relationship and so on. It has to be banned in public space, yeah. But if I turned up today with a semi-veiled face and said I'd like to conduct this interview with me, with you like this, what would you say? I would ask you that I am uh, not comfortable. If you were uh, half-veiled, I would tell you that I'm not comfortable to, to, to pursue the conversation because I, uh, I cannot speak with somebody who is veiled. I cannot speak with somebody who looks at me without me possibly looking at her. It's a different relationship. It is not an open, equal, face-to-face -face relationship. But how can you, in a way, force people to want an open face-to-face -face relationship 
if they say, and there is a, also an aspect of uh, feminism in, in Islam that says, this is the way I would like to do it. It's not just about how you feel, it's about how I might feel if I want to, to show my faith or indeed even my political conviction by failing myself. What, what do I do if tomorrow in my, in, in my street uh, someone comes with a brown shirt, with a Nazi insign, with a Stavitska and so on? It, he will say, it's my pleasure. I don't harm anyone. I don't threat to, to kill you. It is just my, my way of being. I would say that it is a, a vivid, a living preach for values who who condemned the, the sort of society in which I want to live, me and my, my children. It is the same for the emblems of, of radical Islam. Radical Islam is a sort of fascism. Radical Islam, jihadist Islam, is a sort of fascism. And any visible sign who, which works as a, as a preach for that, from my point of view, has to be banned or embarrassed at least, but banned by law. What about the headscarf then? Because you see a proliferation, or you can go into supermarkets in in London and see ladies, cheerful ladies will serve you in Topshop wearing the headscarf. Headscarf is okay. The question is the face. The face. I want to... I don't like the idea of a woman compelled or convinced to think that her face is impure, dirty, just a piece of flesh, victim to the concupiscence of the man. I don't like that. I don't like this image of the women. It is, it goes against all that women did conquer uh, across the, the last decades or centuries. And number two, I don't like to be looking uh, someone who I cannot look. So on the two sides, for her and for me, it's a, a non-democratic relationship. Now, if the face is is open, if it is a scarf covering the hair, of course there is no problem. But I have some sympathy, but I'm, I'm interested in the comparison with fascism or the wearing of a brown shirt. Is that really a legitimate comparison? Of course it is. Uh, the, the question is to know if radical Islam is a fascism or not. This is a key point. If you don't think it is, okay. If you think it is, what are the emblems, what are the signs uh, which uh, express the belonging and the will to convert others to this new fascism? The complete veil, the, 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 the hiding of the face of the women, this minorization of the women is, why, is one of these signs. It is not the only one, but it is one of them. To close, uh, we bumped into each other in Britain, post-Brexit Britain, not, not so long ago. And I think you said something at the time to the effect that the EU without Britain was was missing a major part of itself in the uh, event of Article 50 being triggered and Brexit happening in the next uh, few months. What is the EU for you without Britain? EU without Britain... Uh is EU deprived uh, of uh, part of its soul? We were speaking at the beginning of this conversation about the liberalism uh, with its two uh, beating hearts, economic and political. This hypothesis 
that the political liberties match with economical liberties. This uh, uh, bet that you you have to combine in a way the two. You have some countries who don't combine. You have uh, China, for example. You have a model of a dictatorship, political dictatorship, with uh, economic um, uh, liberalism. You have uh, some uh, uh, situation uh, of uh, the, the opposite. The matching of the two, which is the very uh, ground of the model of society which uh, post-Nazism uh, and post-Communism, this model, the pattern was given by, by the British. From the, the 18th century philosophers to the speech of Winston Churchill in Zurich in uh, 48 or 49, in between these times, the ground was settled for this combination of the two. It is the, the, the heart. Britain made this um, synthesis. Great Britain, UK, made this combination happen. So, But Britain, you know, one way or the other, it looks like different relationship. Britain probably on the outside, certainly outer core. Will the EU survive? Maybe. The, the values invented by UK have contaminated enough the rest of Europe so that Europe can, can live without the, the stem cell, maybe. But uh, it is not sure at all. I, I don't know if the spirit of John Locke, if the spirit of Winston Churchill can become an offshore spirit re-implemented in uh, Germany and in France without the, the, the original cell uh, keeping the link. I, I don't know. It will be interesting to see, but it is not sure at all. And this and the Brexit could increase the process toward the democratures or the illiberal democracies, which is a real process of today. Look at Hungary, look at Bulgaria, look at uh, Russia illiberal democracies. This could be the, the model of the coming times. This week's guest on The Economist Asks has been the author, Bernd-Henri Lévy. If you have any thoughts on what he had to say on bans on religious headscarves, the rise of Marine Le Pen and the pros and cons of military intervention, do put them in an email and send them to us, radio at economist.com. Or, of course, you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist and find us online at economist.com. In Paris, this is The Economist. <laughs>